And we're going to be reading from verse 17 to 48. And as I said earlier, the, the headings there are, are pretty convicting. Matthew chapter 5 from verse 17 under the heading The Fulfilment of the Law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And under the heading murder you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgement. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgement. Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. And under adultery, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And under the heading divorce, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Oaths. Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not break your oath but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you do not swear at all either by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem 
for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. An eye for an eye. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks, Chris. Can I just say uh, I'm a little bit disappointed that the uh, Clean Up Australia Day was called off. I was hoping that maybe instead of being uh, postponed that it might be uh, entirely concentrated on my house. I thought that, uh, that a little bit of help uh, wouldn't have gone astray, a bit of a clean up the garage uh, day, but, uh, but it's not to be. Uh, anyway, to, to the matters at hand... Uh, I don't know, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that we looked at uh, authentic Christian witness and as we were going through that we saw that Jesus is somehow able to hold together the gospel of grace and also this desire for eminent uh, holiness. Uh, And I said that this week we'd think a little bit more about that, about how uh, the gospel uh, and God's law hold together. It seems to me that that's one of the greatest riddles in the Christian life. How do those two things, which at one level seem so uh, different, seem so mutually exclusive, how do those things fit together? People uh, often fall uh, into one of two extremes, I think, when they think about this question. Either they become what's often called antinomian, uh, which which is a word which just means against the law. People kind of give up on the law. They don't care about the law anymore. That's one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is that people can become incredibly legalistic uh, and they lose sight of the power of God uh, in the Gospel and in Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do you hold uh, the law and the Gospel together without falling into one of those uh, two extremes, without thinking that you can just go on and do whatever you want uh, and also without becoming incredibly legalistic? 
Well, I think in, the, in uh, this chapter here, uh, Jesus really tries to answer that question. And right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he really seeks to make clear what his relationship between, uh, the, with, between him and the law and the prophets really is. Uh, in verse 17 he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, unless, um, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Evidently, uh, some people thought that that might have been the case. Some people thought that uh, Jesus may be coming to abolish the law and the prophets. But Jesus says he, that won't happen. He hasn't come to abolish them, he's come to fulfil them. But what does he mean by that? What does it mean that he's come to fulfil them? Well, to try and understand what he means, it's useful to look back through the first four chapters of Matthew uh, and to see how Matthew has so far used that word fulfil. Let me quickly go through all the the times when Matthew uses that word. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 22, uh, it says this, "...all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophets." Uh, in 2 verse 15, and so is fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. In chapter 2 verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. In chapter 2 verse 23, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. In chapter 3 verse 15, regarding uh, Jesus' baptism, He said to John, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. In chapter 4 verse 13, leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfil what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The point is, uh, from all those quotes, is that in Matthew so far, fulfilment has referred to Jesus bringing to fulfilment what God had promised and foreshadowed beforehand in the Old Testament. If you've been coming along since the beginning of this series in Matthew, then you'll remember, no doubt, that that's been a pretty big theme. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. And that's exactly what he's saying here about the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that he has come to bring to reality what the law foreshadowed or what the law prophesied. Uh, at one level that's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, at one level I think if you've been in church for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, it's pretty clear at the level of sacrifices in the Old Testament we kind of get that Jesus is fulfilling the law, Jesus fulfilled the law. Uh, It's relatively straightforward, I think, to understand how uh, the law about the Passover lamb, say, from the Old Testament was fulfilled by Jesus. Just like in the days of Moses when the people slaughtered the Passover lamb and they put the blood on the door frames of their houses so that the angel of death, God's angel of death, would pass over them, would, would skip over them and they'd escape judgment. In the same way, if we trust in Jesus and in his blood shed for us, God's judgment passes over us. God's judgment misses us. I think it's pretty easy as well to kind of understand how laws about the burnt offering are fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, In the same way, 
that the sacrifice was totally burned up, totally consumed. Jesus was totally burned up, totally consumed by the wrath of God so that God's wrath against those who believe in Jesus might be put aside. Uh, So I think it's pretty straightforward to, to see at least how a lot of the Old Testament rituals kind of pointed forward to fulfilment in Jesus. We might not get all the details of all of them, uh, but we kind of get the general idea. And we saw that, didn't we, uh, in the middle of last year, the second half of last year, as we went through the book of Leviticus. We saw how those things pointed to Jesus. But what about the rest of the law? What about the laws about not eating meat with blood still in it? How are those laws fulfilled by Jesus? What about laws about... Uh, tattoos in Leviticus 19, how are those fulfilled? What about laws about not eating fruit from trees for the first three years? How are those laws fulfilled by Jesus? People often deal with that question in a couple of different ways. Some people say that nothing in the Old Testament applies today unless it's specifically mentioned again in the New Testament. So nothing applies unless it's specifically mentioned again. Other people say that everything in the Old Testament law applies today unless it's specifically said that it doesn't matter anymore. Other people still talk about the law being made up of ceremonial law, uh, which related, so that's all the sacrifices. There's the civil law, which kind of related to the government of the nation uh, and, and the courts, if you like. Uh, and then there, there were also the, uh, the moral laws uh, and they say that the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled by Jesus, the sacrifices have been fulfilled, the civil laws don't matter anymore because we're no longer, the people of God are no longer a nation governed, uh, governed uh, under God's rules, so to speak. Uh, but the moral laws have continuing kind of validity. But Jesus says it's just not that easy. It's, it's, it's not that simple. He doesn't say, I've come to fulfil this part of the law and these other bits I've come to kind of wash over. He says that he's come to fulfil all of it. Hopefully uh, in a few months' time we'll be able to go back to the book of Leviticus uh, and to the second half and to, and to trace through some of the laws in the second half of that book and see how they're mapped through Jesus' first coming uh, and, and, and to his second coming, his return. But for the moment, I think, it's enough to realise, to see that fundamentally the question for each law in the Old Testament, the question that we always need to ask is this, to what was this pointing and how was it fulfilled in Jesus? What's the principle behind this law and how did, Jesus, how did Jesus and how is Jesus bringing that to a reality? Uh, in, some, in some ways that question doesn't buy you much, though does it really? <laughs> it's still a hard question to answer. Uh, how do you, how do, you, know, you have to kind of think hard about that to be able to understand what the law was pointing to, what, you know, what's the principle behind it, how is it fulfilled in Jesus? But how the New Testament treats specific laws, I think, gives us pretty strong hints about the direction that we should be going and how Jesus in particular treats specific laws helps us to understand what the law was pointing to. And in a moment we'll see uh, that in what follows uh, what Jesus is saying, 
uh, is that he's trying to give, I, I guess, a central idea about the fulfilment of the law, a, a one kind of central theme that if you grasp hold of that, everything else fits into place. There's one idea, if you grab that about what the law is pointing to, everything else makes sense. But for the moment, I think, it simply remains for us to understand that what Jesus is saying is he's not come to get rid of the law. That's really the first thing I guess to realise is that Jesus did not come to abolish the law but he came to make a reality what it pointed to. That's the first thing. Well, in the rest of the chapter Jesus goes on to show how, how he's come to do that uh, and in the next six sections he begins to unpack a number of Old Testament laws uh, and he begins to show the direction they were pointing uh, and he pushes toward this one overarching theme. So in verses 21 to 26, uh, he talks about murder and he shows that it's not just murder which is a problem, but anger is a problem. You might never have murdered a person, but he says that Jesus says if you're angry with someone or bitter toward them, then you're subject to that same judgment. In the same way, he, he pushes it further and he says... Uh, the law against murder also suggests not only that people should not be angry but that they should positively pursue peace. If someone has something against you, you should sort it out. In verses 27 to 30, he talks about adultery and he shows that adultery runs deeper than just sex outside of marriage. Even lust, he says, and wrong thoughts cross the line. Anyone who looks lustfully at a person who isn't their spouse uh, has committed adultery in their hearts. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus talks about oaths and vows. And what he does is he shows that God is interested not just in people keeping their specific promises, but he's interested in trustworthiness. He wants people who are, who are trustworthy, who, whose yes is yes. And no is no. When I was in primary school, I don't, I don't know, it was just a, a weird Sydney thing. When I was in primary school, if you said something and someone wanted, you to, hold, wanted to hold you to account, they would, they would say, cross your heart and hope to die. Yeah? Is that, that's not just weird. Okay. And, you know, and if, and if they didn't make you say that, then you could get out of it, couldn't you? You know, and, and you'd not follow through on your word and... Uh, and then they say, but you said you were just, and, you know, but I, didn't, I, never, I never promised. And that's how you get out of it, you know. And it's kind of funny, isn't it, that kids do that. But the tragedy is that adults do that as well. You know, maybe not with cross your heart and hope to die. But, you know, what Jesus is saying is that he, the law pointed not just to people keeping oaths, but just to people being trustworthy and honourable and decent, In verses 38 to 42, uh, Jesus shows how, how justice and kindness meet together. Uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that was a law which God had given so that the court, so that the government would know how to, how to hand out penalties for crimes committed. You know, the, we have that expression today, the punishment should fit the crime. When the, when the courts hand out decisions, the punishment should fit the crime. It's not, it was, it's not and was, never was a statement about personal vengeance. But that's how people had taken it. People had, had thought that that meant that was open slather for their personal retaliation. 
But Jesus says, in contrast, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In the place of retaliation, Jesus commands non-resistance and generosity. And last of all, in verses 43 to 47, Jesus shows how real righteousness shows love not just for friends but for enemies. Anyone can love people, Jesus says, anyone can love people who love them back. That's easy love. But the hard love, the kind of love which God shows and which Jesus' people ought to show, is love for enemies. If you love those, says Jesus, who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors collectors doing that? So Jesus goes through these laws and really starts to unpack them, I think, and try and show the direction in which they're pointing. And in essence, he does two things. In the first place, he challenges what people thought. He challenges the wrong ideas that people had about where the law was pointing. He says... You guys, instead of seeing the expansiveness of the law, have, have kind of reduced it. You've, you've made it into something quite manageable. You've made it into something quite condensed, quite small. And in doing that, you've kind of emptied it of its meaning. They'd, instead of seeing the expansiveness of what the law is pointing to, they'd, they'd contracted it. But Jesus is also showing, not, showing, not only showing that they're wrong but he's also showing and opening up the true direction which the law pointed. And what he shows, I think, is this. He shows that the law was not just a shadow of better sacrifices, that's how we normally think about it, but he shows that the law was also a shadow pointing to better righteousness and to better holiness. The law wasn't just a shadow pointing to better sacrifices, but the law was a shadow pointing to better righteousness and to better holiness. Jesus is saying that the law pointed forward to a world where people didn't just avoid murder, but they pursued peace. A world where his people don't just avoid sex outside of marriage, but they avoid improper thoughts and feelings. A world where his people don't just love friends, but they love enemies and pray for those who persecute them. So in a sense, Jesus is pushing the law deeper. But here's where it gets really interesting, I think, and where it gets kind of overwhelming as well and it begins to, we begin to get a clearer sense of what Jesus is talking about. There's also a sense in which some of these laws will be totally redundant when Jesus' kingdom has fully come. And Jesus is already beginning to point in that direction. So laws about swearing oaths and making promises are totally unnecessary when people are are honest. You don't need laws about that when people are honest and when their yes is yes and their no is no. You don't need laws about divorce when relationships don't break down and people don't cheat on each other. You don't need laws about the extent of retaliation and about the extent of, of justice when there is no crime and there is no injustice. In other words, the fulfilment of the law which Jesus is pointing to is not just going deeper but he's showing how ultimately some of these laws are left behind. Not because they're abolished but because they're not necessary anymore. 
And the reason they're not necessary is because there is this establishment and realisation of this greater righteousness and greater holiness. That righteousness is summed up by Jesus. This whole idea is summed up by Jesus in verse 48. Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That, that's the summary. That's the summary of where the law was pointing. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here is the fulfilment of the law, being like God in our attitudes and our thoughts and our inclinations and our loves. There are many people I suspect who if they, uh, people who claim to be following and trusting Jesus but people who I think if they found themselves in the presence of God, in the new world which God is going to create, people who would be bitterly disappointed. They would be bitterly disappointed, I think, because the world which God is creating is not the world that they hope for. People who want to hang on to their anger, people who want to hang on to their bitterness, people who enjoy belittling other people, people who couldn't fathom a world without being able to do that, people who want to cling to lust and to improper love of movie stars and famous musicians, people who want to hang on to edgy movies and TV shows and songs and even, even want to hang on to things like full-scale porn, people who want to be able to end marriages at the drop of a hat because they're kind of over it and they have other interests now, or because they realise that loving sinful people like themselves is just way too hard. People who want to take revenge into their own hands. People who don't want to love their enemies. They want to harbour grudges. People like that, people who want to hang on to those things, would have no joy in the world that God is creating. Because Jesus says he's creating a world without those things. He's creating a world where people are perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. We've talked over the last couple of weeks about that idea of holiness uh, and the mistake, I think, that so many Christians make is to think that the good news is that God doesn't care about holiness and righteousness anymore. But that's not the good news. Jesus says God, that he and God care about that as much as ever. He and his Father care about holiness as much as they ever did. Jesus says ultimately the standard that he and his father are setting is nothing less than absolute perfection. So there we have it. Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law but to fulfil the law and the fulfilment which he foresees, which he envisages is absolute perfection like his father is perfect. So where do, we, where do we go from there? You know, what does that mean for us? That's a pretty demanding kind of goal, isn't it? It's a pretty demanding sta- standard. You know, how do we how do we deal with that? This is not just about best efforts. God isn't just saying Jesus isn't saying, 
you know, just try your hardest and if you try your hardest, you know, it's, not pr- it's not primary school, you know, if you do your best you'll get there. Is this saying, no, absolute perfection is the goal. So how then can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved? Well, I, the key, I think, in many ways is to go back to the beginning, to go right back to the beginning of what we looked at this morning and to those words of Jesus, I have come to fulfil them. I have come to fulfil them. You see, when Jesus says that he's come to fulfil the law and the prophets, he's not saying just that the law is more intense than you could have ever imagined. He's, He's not just saying that, although that's true. More importantly, he's saying that he's come to make what the law pointed to a reality. Jesus is not saying, I've come to tell you how hard it is to please God, now go and do it. He's not saying, now that I've come, God doesn't care about righteousness anymore. What he is saying is this, I've come to make that a reality. I've come to do it. I've come to fulfil it. It's about me and what I'm doing, not about you and what you're doing. It's all about Jesus and Jesus fulfilling the law. Well, if that's the case then, how, how does what Jesus is doing become relevant for us? For us? How, how do we get caught up in what Jesus is doing? The answer, uh, in the light of everything that we've seen in Matthew so far, I think is clear. How do we get caught up in what Jesus is doing? The answer is this, we repent and trust in Jesus. That's the fundamental call of what Jesus is doing. The call is to repent, to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. That's what we need to do. We say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm not perfect. I know that's what what God demands but I'm not perfect. I need you to save me. What I need you to do is to do what you've promised. That's what I need you to do. I need you to do what you've promised. That fulfilment of Jesus includes what he's done once for all in his death and resurrection and life, but it also includes what Jesus is doing in people. In other words, the good news of the gospel is fundamentally about promise and fulfilment. And both those things are tied to the person of Jesus. The gospel is fundamentally about promise and fulfilment and both those things are tied to the person of Jesus. If you trust and follow Jesus, that promise is yours and so must also be the fulfilment. I think this is really, I think this is really crucial to understand. This is, a, this is such an amazing and useful way of understanding the gospel this model of promise and fulfilment. See, because what it means is this. If we repent and turn to Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, that promise belongs to us, right? What God has promised belongs to us. And what God has promised, he will fulfil. But that fulfilment doesn't happen straight away. It happens over time. The moment we come to Christ, we're caught up in the promise and we're caught up in the fulfilment. And what is begun will finish. But we're not there yet. I think, that, I think that has some amazing implications for how we think about the Christian life. 
There are some people here today who look at their lives and think to themselves, I'm so messed up. You know, I'm just, there is so much sin in my life, I get angry, I have lustful thoughts, I make promises that I can't keep, I take revenge instead of showing kindness. I love my friends but I, but I struggle to love enemies. You know, I messed up. So where am I with God? Where, what is my relationship with God like? Well, here's the thing. If instead of denying those things you confess them to, to, to Christ, if you admit them, if you own your sinfulness and say to Jesus, I need you to do what you've promised. That's what I need most of all. I can't do anything. I need you to fulfil what you've promised. Then you will be caught up in that promise and in that fulfilment. You see, your salvation doesn't depend on what you bring to the table, does it? It depends on God's promise and Jesus fulfilling that. There may be other people are here too, who aren't sure where they stand. Uh, people who are not sure if they've truly believed, people who are not sure if they're really following Jesus. But here's the thing, within this understanding of promise and fulfilment, partial fulfilment encourages us to hope in future fulfilment. What God has begun, he will complete. God who has begun a good work in you, Paul says, will carry it on to completion. If you look at your life and you see, if you see in your life anger being replaced by grace and peace, hate being replaced by love, if you see the beginnings of that beatitude like righteousness, uh, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, trusting God more and more, hungry and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, if you see those things in your life and in increasing measure, then you can be confident that what God has begun in Jesus, he will bring to fulfilment. What is now partly complete will one day be made perfect. So how do you hold the law and the gospel together? That's the question really, isn't it? How do you hold the law and the gospel together? You don't do it by minimising the law. You don't do it by saying it's not as hard as this. The law points to nothing less than the perfection of God himself. So how do you hold the law and the gospel together? You hold them together by realising that the fulfilment of the law and of perfection is in the hands of Jesus Christ and no one else. That's how you hold the gospel and the law together, by realising that the fulfilment, not just in history but in our lives, depends on the work and person of Jesus Christ. And the only way to receive that then is to repent and to trust in God's majestic Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these are hard things to understand. Lord, they're hard things sometimes to work out in practice. Lord, how to obey you, how to follow Jesus, the practicalities of that, what that looks like in different situations. Lord, those are hard things. 
And yet, Lord, the basic point is clear. That our life and our hope and our righteousness and the fulfilment of everything that you've promised and everything that you require doesn't belong to us and isn't in our hands, but it's in the hands of your majestic Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that each one of us would be, would be enabled to see how much we need Jesus and that you might grant us the grace to turn to him and that you might grant us to see the wonderful blessing of Jesus doing what you've promised. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.